0: Hi there, I'm Anne-Marie McQueen, editor of Live Healthy and host of the Live Healthy podcast. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Stephen Grobmeyer, Chair of the Oncology Unit, Professor of Surgery and Director of Breast Cancer Surgery at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi. We catch up with Dr. Grobmeyer every year ahead of Breast Cancer Awareness Month to talk about the latest developments in the fight against breast cancer, best practices and prevention what every woman can do today to minimize their risks. So it's that time of year again. Dr. Grabmeyer, when I get to talk to you about breast cancer.
1: (laughs) Nice to see you again, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. This is always an important time of the year for us uh, because it's uh, a time where we can pay particular attention to this uh, public health problem.
0: So I I think I've spoken to you for two years now. Mm -hmm. What's changed in the last year? What has, What are some of the things that you're interested, alarmed, excited about?
1: Yes, thank you for that question. A lot's changing. Um, we're learning a lot more. I've been in the UAE now three years, so we're learning a lot more about breast cancer in the UAE specifically. Uh but in the greater world of breast cancer, a lot's changing, uh particularly when it comes to new treatments uh for women who unfortunately get diagnosed with breast cancer. And that's very exciting uh because we're we're more and more able to turn uh we used to be um very aggressive disease and then not such aggressive disease and women are Living better and longer lives as a result of that. So uh, we continue to be optimistic and we continue to push forward with with uh, participating in research uh, that will help continue to make this uh, you know a better situation for everyone.
0: So most breast cancer diagnoses these days, what are, what is are, what do you say when I you know if, if someone's sitting in your office, what's your advice about it? What's your what's your first sort of discussion about it?
1: Yeah, the first thing we try to do is reassure patients that um, they're going to be in good hands that we have an excellent team that can take care of them. Um we're going to address all of their needs. And then we try to um, every every case of breast cancer is different. And so we try to begin our discussion by really helping educate patients and families about um, the specifics of a person's diagnosis. And how that impacts uh the decisions that we're going to make together about uh, treating uh, a particular patient and uh, i I think we tend to do this working as a group because most breast cancer patients need a a team of of doctors and specialists taking care of them and and i think what we try to do is get patients to quickly realize that we have a plan for them and that uh, the plans can be very effective and um, there's a lot we can do to make people healthy again. So, and I think once people who come in with a lot of anxiety based on the new diagnosis, which is expected, once they realize they're in good hands and and uh, there's a comprehensive team around them that's here to support them and help them recover, um, the anxiety level drops, and then we can really move forward.
0: When you talk about you know the different kinds, like how many different kinds are we talking about?
1: Well, the way the way we define the kinds of breast cancer are based on um, Primarily, these little molecules that sit on top of the cancer cells, we call them receptors. And so um, what we typically do is we'll review that with a patient. There are three receptors that we look at in in almost every case. One is called estrogen receptor. One is called progesterone receptor. And the the last one's called HER2 receptor. And those are like, you know, fancy medical terms. But those receptors determine a lot about how the cancer behaves and also, we've learned that there are very specific treatments for each uh, of the different types of breast cancer. So there are other ways we can categorize breast cancer, but from a, a treatment and prognosis standpoint, the, the, the most impactful are those three receptors, ER, PR, and HER2. So uh, patients will hear that when they come and see us, and, and we'll go over that. And then each doctor team of doctors that see the patient will also go over it, and then people will start to understand
0: And can you just explain a little bit to me, like, what the difference is, like HER2, estrogen, progesterone? Mm -hmm. Like, how is it developing and how how does it present in those three different kinds?
1: Well, that's one of the the tricky things about what we do, and it's why it's important that patients, uh, you know, get regular checkups and see doctors and get mammograms, because breast cancer uh, can present in very heterogeneous ways. A common way is it presents as a lump. Uh, It can also show up on a mammogram. It can also present as changes in skin color or nipple discharge and things like that. So um, any of those breast cancers can present any of those ways. And so there's no, it's not like uh, if a patient has HER2 positive breast cancer, they'll have a lump. And if they don't have HER2 positive breast cancer, it'll be something else. Any of those, and they're very overlapping. The way we determine what those receptors are, is based on a needle biopsy. So the patient goes is referred to a very safe procedure called a needle biopsy. The radiologist takes under local anesthesia where the patient's very comfortable, takes a small sample, and then our expert pathologists review those slides, and they have some testing they do in the laboratory, and then they generate a report, and that's what we're able to go over with the patient. Um, And and that's the information we spend a lot of time going over, in addition to many other things uh, about a particular case that help us decide how to treat a patient.
0: So what exactly is HER2? That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, I
1: see. So it turns out that all the cells in our body, uh, uh, the behavior of any cell in your body is governed by these little antennas or little proteins that sit on the surface of the cell. And what those antennas or proteins do on every cell in your body is they, they get signals from other parts of the body through hormones and chemicals, it, it affects how cells react to cells around them so it's kind of the sensors of the cells it turns out that about 20 percent of breast cancers have too many of these her2 uh, proteins on the surface and and it's uh when when a cell as a cancer cell develops with too many of these her2 proteins on it they tend to grow really fast and they tend to spread fast uh, the good news about that is that in the last 20 years, we've developed many, many new drugs that specifically target that HER2 receptor. And we can, in many cases, completely knock out the cancer with some new medications. Okay. So, but HER2 is just one of the many receptors. It turns out that it's important in the treatment of breast cancer. So that's why we measure it and study it in every case of breast cancer.
0: It does, do our actual hormones, like when you say there's estrogen receptor, mm-hmm progesterone it makes you think oh my gosh my hormones are actually maybe involved in the cancer that i'm developing mm-hmm. but is that like does estrogen and do estrogen and progesterone have something to do actually with the development of the cancer or how does that play with the fact that the- yeah, that's,
1: that's a great question we get that all the time um you know those hormones are normal in a person's body so that you know it's it's part of who we are we wouldn't you know, it's uh, and undoubtedly um, in patients with breast cancer whose breast cancers express those hormone receptors. We have some very specific medicines that we can give, usually orally, and those medicines will block the estrogen receptor. And it's one strategy we use to keep cancer from coming back. Uh, another scenario is we sometimes use those medications in very high risk women who have genetic high risk or other reasons to have high risk. To help prevent them from getting breast cancer. But that said, uh, estrogen and progesterone are normal. And so, uh, we don't really think of them as particularly causing breast cancer. More we manipulate them to either reduce risk or to treat breast cancer. Uh, so it's not like, uh, we say a normal risk patient should be doing anything to alter their hormones to, to mitigate their breast cancer risk. It's, 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 you know, it's normal to have those hormones
0: like i know there's all sorts of risk factors and we can talk about that but why do you why does breast cancer happen like what's (laughs) in that you know like i've heard that we have cancer appearing in our bodies all the time and our immune system is sort of kicking it off right and then in some situations um and i've heard other experts say you know in the end we don't actually know that much about why cancer actually develops and i'm sort of wondering where that's at for breast cancer
1: right that's another great question um I think the, the factors that we know most about when it comes to uh, breast cancer risk are um, the genes we inherit from our parents. So 20 years ago, we knew about two genes, they're called BRCA1 and BRCA2, and if we inherit an abnormal gene from our parents, uh, that, that we know will put an individual at very high risk for breast cancer. Uh, an area where a lot of progress is being made is that in the last 20 years, we've also identified Now there are a number of other genes that are also associated with breast cancer risk. So it turns out that when we have an abnormal copy of one of those genes, um, by virtue of that abnormality, uh, it puts an an individual at significantly increased risk. And it highlights the reason why uh, family history is so important, and that talking to your doctor about your family history, because there are patterns of disease, breast cancer and ovarian cancer in families that suggest that a given family may have a genetic mutation And then we can actually these days easily with a blood test or a saliva test, test for those genes and we can use that to identify people who are at particularly high risk. There are a number of other risk factors that we study and we ask patients about every day in the clinic. And in combination, they are, uh, associated, they they can identify patients who have high risk. But any individual one of those other factors aside from the genetics alone is not really, uh, that helpful. It's the combination of, of a number of different things where we've built models that can predict risk. But to answer your question directly, for the non-genetic cases, we really don't know what causes uh, breast cancer. We'll see a, a 32-year-old uh, patient who's otherwise healthy and living their life and no family history show up in the office with breast cancer, and we get this question all the time: uh, "Why do I have this?" And the answer is, unless they have a genetic mutation, we really don't know right now why they got it. And we reassure them they didn't do anything to themselves to get it because sometimes people feel guilty or they should have shouldn't have done this or something but it's nothing that people did it's quite a bit different than the comparator of like lung cancer where somebody smokes every day for 50 years and they develop lung cancer then in that case we can say well the lung cancer was probably related to the smoking so this is quite a bit different and, and we try to you know just put people at ease saying you didn't do anything wrong um, but we're here to help you.
0: Yeah, it's one of the, I mean, it's great how much information is out there about health and wellness, and it's only growing as everyone tries to be health, healthy and well, but I notice on social media, there is a tone, you know, sort of, if you do all these things, you won't get sick, and then, you know, sort of the tone that, what did you do, and what, right. that, I, I have heard of people who have a diagnosis, and that's one of the questions they get, is like, why, like, sort of, what did you do? And, of course, people asking it are just terrified, like, what did you do? I can't, right. I won't do it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there was a lot of attention for people who had those, those BRCA genes getting mastectomies preventative, you know, Angela got one and I, there was a popular show, uh, that I watched on Netflix recently. And there was an arc of a character who also got it, which
1: mm-hmm. is,
0: I wondered where we're at with that. Are people still going ahead with the mastectomy to prevent getting, mm-hmm. or is it more of an epigenetic type thing where people are saying, okay, I've got the gene, but this is what I can do to work on on prevent it preventing its expression, like where where is that in twenty twenty
1: two yeah, so there are many factors that um, would affect a patient's decision about how to handle that information. The first thing I want to emphasize though, is that I think that information is very empowering. I think there was a time in the past, you know twenty years ago or so uh, mm-hmm. where People felt threatened by that information, and I think uh, we've seen in in working here in the UAE for the last several years that even in that narrow time window, we're, I think, seeing more acceptance of genetic testing Uh, because I think people are slowly realizing that um, you do have options. Uh, I think in the old days it was a belief that if you had the gene mutation, you had to have that surgery, um, but that's not true. There's lots of other things we can do to help patients and their families who do have those gene mutations, even though they're at high risk. Uh, it turns out that the most effective way for a patient to reduce their risk, uh, which may be up to 80 percent in some of these mutations lifetime risk of breast cancer, the most effective way is to have surgery, but it's not required. And the things that we factor in are um, a patient's age, uh, their other health factors, you know, there are other comorbidities, uh, the age of onset of breast cancer in their family, if they have a family history. And their personal, uh, you know, belief. Uh, so some patients knowing that they have an 80% lifetime risk and you tell them, well, the alternative is to have a, you know, screening twice a year and to be checked twice a year. Uh, they have a lot of anxiety about that and they prefer to have surgery. Others don't want surgery, uh, because obviously it will change their body and their side effects of surgery, uh, that nobody would necessarily choose. Um, but we, we usually present all of the options to patients and then support the decisions that they make and then provide an environment where they can follow up and be responsibly followed. So there's lots of options. And it also depends on the gene mutation because different gene mutations confer a different amount of risk. And, and so we talk to patients about that too and share with them all the information we have about the different genetic mutations.
0: And when women are diagnosed with breast cancer, what are they facing a certain certain mastectomy like is that a definite part of the treatment protocol now for for all sorts of the cancer or where where does that take down
1: that's another good question surgery is a major part of the treatment of breast cancer still i mean i think a lot of work that's going on around the world we all hope one day that patients would not need surgery for breast cancer or any cancer if the medicine got good enough or we knew how to prevent cancer then that would be the ultimate but It turns out in 2022 that surgery is still a major part of the treatment of breast cancer. And most patients with new diagnosis of breast cancer do end up with some form of surgery at some point. Um, The patients that um, sometimes do not have surgery are those who present where they have something called metastatic breast cancer, where at the time of diagnosis, the cancer has spread to other parts of the body. And in those cases, we typically will use medicine, in some cases surgery, but mostly medicine to treat them, um, as the value of surgery on the breast and in some of those cases may be diminished. Mm-hmm. But for most patients with localized breast cancer involving the breast and or the lymph nodes, uh, surgery is still a mainstay. Now the, the thing about surgery is the type and, and the ability of us to do surgery and, and, and all the reconstructive, uh, uh, surgeries that go with that have improved and continue to improve. And we're making a lot of advances in reducing some of the morbidity of surgery and hiding, this, hiding the incisions, um, things that we can also do to make the recovery easier and faster. So there, we're making a lot of progress there, although the need for surgery is still there.
0: Now, you're at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi, which is sort of the Gold, best of the best. I would feel very excited if my health insurance <laughs> covered mm-hmm. there. But a lot of us aren't, and there's a lot of people in this country who don't have much in the way of means. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I know, for example, the the um, the woman who has worked with me, she's clean, she's a cleaner, and she just was diagnosed with breast cancer earlier. Mm-hmm. And I want to point out her situation because she said that her nipple was odd like it was sort of puckered and I said right away she she was putting it off and putting it off I'm like please 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 go Mm -hmm. because like that's just one of the really definite signs but what worried us was you know she's from the Philippines she's she's I just was really worried and I saw in the beginning of her treatment that she was not she wasn't getting the attention that I felt that you know, and and you know what kind of a society it is here, and sometimes not everyone gets the same sort of attention. And I had to say, go in there and yell, and, and <laughs> really worried that the treatment she was going to get wouldn't be as good as the treatment that other people would get that had other means. And I spoke to one endocrinologist about it, and he said it's pretty standard treatment, like <laughs> whatever. She's at a good hospital. She's going to get sort of. So, can you just talk a little bit about that, the protocol, and because I know you immediately with. I would think like I want the best of the best, but mm-hmm. how is that sort of how does that work?
1: Well, we're lucky in the UAE. Uh, there are a lot of good uh, doctors and teams of doctors who who take care of uh, breast cancer and other other uh, problems. There are different um, healthcare systems that different patients can access, and and I think. As long as the patient is receiving care at one of the you know, major uh, or larger hospitals where there's a dedicated group that's focused on the care of breast cancer. I mean, we've even come a long way in the training of doctors. So uh, a lot of doctors I know in the country have specific training in breast cancer. So that's a start. And usually doctors like that work not in isolation, but as uh, part of a team um, that, you uh, that, that can help uh, patients get the best outcomes. And we we also communicate. So we sometimes get phone calls from doctors and other hospitals when they have questions about what to do, even though, um, uh, the patient will stay at the, at the local facility, we can provide insight and guidance as to, as to what can be done. So, uh, we do have a network of people, uh, that work together. Uh, everyone's goal is essentially the same, which is to help the patients have the best outcome. And fortunately, like I said, um, as long as patients are at some of the major centers in the country, uh, then I think we're, they're, they're in pretty good shape from, from what I've seen.
0: Um, everyone's been talking about this podcast. I don't know whether you know Andrew Huberman. It's a podcast called Huberman Lab, and he's a Stanford. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he talked all about alcohol. So there's, I, I feel like around the world, people who are into health, I've been listening to this two-hour podcast on alcohol. The news was not good. And he mm-hmm. spoke about breast cancer, and he said it can increase your risk looking at the data between 4 and 13%. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is I don't know if this is something that people know, so I was wondering if you could sort of speak to the risk of regular drinking. Um, yeah,
1: on- I, I think there, there's more and more evidence uh, coming out that does associate uh, alcohol consumption with uh, cancer risk, uh, breast cancer risk. And I, it's something we've known about for a while, but like a lot of things uh, over time, we c- continue to collect more evidence about that. Um I, I think if patients are going to choose to drink, that the moderation, like all things in life, uh, is, is probably the best way to go. Um, but what those exact thresholds are and how they relate to an exact risk in an individual patient, I, I think, is is not entirely clear. But as you point out, um, certainly excessive alcohol is is not only unhealthy for issues related to breast cancer risk, but many other aspects of uh, one's health. So. I think part of healthy living would be if one chooses to consume alcohol, then moderation is the way to go. Um, And daily drinking or binge drinking is is not good, not only because it causes breast cancer risk, but for a variety of other reasons. So I, I think we're learning in a greater context, really, and we're focusing on that here more and more, is about the importance of lifestyle overall. Uh, and breast cancer risk and for a lot of our patients it's breast cancer recurrence and so we put a big emphasis on on that and, and some of the newer studies are actually very impressive about the effect size of lifestyle uh on cancer related outcomes so uh and as it's being studied more and more i think it's for me eye-opening about the effect that some of these what we consider sort of mundane things because they don't they don't cost a lot they don't cost anything uh, you don't take them by mouth. They aren't made by uh, some company and given to you by a doctor, but they can have a huge impact on how well patients do and how likely the cancer is to recur. And then you extrapolate from that. We're also learning that those things are important in cancer prevention, not just breast cancer prevention, but uh, preventing, I'm sure, other kinds of cancer. Uh, and then also it turns out that those same, same things, exercise, uh, healthy diet, um, low, lower stress levels, uh, also associated with lower heart disease risk so there are many many reasons uh, and we've sort of thought of these things as common sense for a long time and, and I think now what we're seeing is a, a proliferation of the scientific evidence well done studies actually confirming these associations and that's why we're taking advantage of that here and, and I have a lot of my patients seen by some of the members of the lifestyle team here at Cleveland Clinic Abu Dhabi and I think patients find that very rewarding to have somebody not who's who's not just focusing on or a team that's not just focusing on the cancer itself and the surgery and the medicine but the things that can patients can do to empower themselves to improve their own outcome and and, uh, so we continue to develop that program and it's something we're proud of and and I know that the patients really um, enjoy uh, the opportunity to participate in that.
0: And you mentioned recurrence what sort of rates Mm of are we looking at
1: that gets back to our earlier discussion so recurrence rates uh, depend upon the type of breast cancer that a patient has it also depends upon the stage of cancer when the patient comes in and that and this is important we didn't talk about stage before but and people sometimes get these these terms confused because there's a lot of different terms it's understandable that they get confused but stage refers to um, usually the size of the cancer and whether it's spread to other locations in the body that's one of the, some of the main determinants of stage these days and so patients who come to see us with an initial diagnosis of a higher stage cancer that is a larger cancer or one that's spread already have a higher rate of recurrence and uh, uh patients where the cancer is small and localized uh, have a lower rate of recurrence and that's why we're so interested in patients participating in screening programs because the earlier a patient is diagnosed in general the better the outcome the less chance of recurrence the less treatment that they need uh, and the better the overall situation so uh, recurrence rates relate to stage and it also relates to those receptors we talked about before uh, so the pattern of receptors can also dictate um, the risk for recurrence and uh and it's really that risk of recurrence that dictates why we treat some people and why we don't treat others. Those with a higher risk, generally, we treat more aggressively, and those with a lower risk, we treat less aggressively. So um, the risk of recurrence varies, and we, that's something we in the medical oncologist spend a lot of time talking to patients about.
0: What about during treatment? Like, I've seen studies that women who continue to walk, mm-hmm. and I know my friend is very, very worried about her bones. She's yes. really, I feel like my bones are getting weak, and... Mm-hmm. Things can you advise for that, like dietary walk? Mm -hmm. I mean, you probably don't feel like it when you're going through treatment.
1: Yeah, there's some interesting studies out there now which look at uh, physical activity. And one of the big things during a lot of uh, cancer treatment is nausea. Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of interesting studies looking at the effect of regular exercise and nausea. Um, So uh, that's something that people can do. We encourage Uh, The medical oncologist will encourage patients to remain as active as they can, even if it's walking on a regular basis and and that kind of thing. It it will also have an impact on reducing fatigue because a lot of patients get a tremendous amount of fatigue during uh, treatment from the side effects of the medications that are given. And again, um, good hydration, making sure patients are well hydrated with fluid, uh, healthy diet, uh, you know, like a Mediterranean diet and a good exercise or things that can really help mitigate some of those uh, side effects, the undesirable side effects, and help patients get through the treatment. Okay.
0: And women are still very worried. Uh, I know the Women's Health Initiative study in 2002 created mm-hmm. a lot of fear around uh, risk for hormone therapy, mm-hmm. cancer risk. And there's a pretty hot debate um, among people about what the actual risk is for mm-hmm. breast cancer taking hormone therapy, it's people who are big hormone therapy proponents say it's very, very, very minimal, like much smaller mm-hmm. thing. And um, what's your take on that? Like, should we worry? And is there things we should know if we decide to take hormone therapy to help with, you know, perimenopause and menopause?
1: Right. Great question. We actually have a team here that is specifically, uh, you know, help, helpful in addressing some of that decision making. And some of it probably should be made in the context of a you know a patient's or individual risk for breast cancer, and so that's one thing we would factor in. But the decision to take hormone therapy, like all all medical decisions, uh, is something that um, one would have to factor in the benefits and the risks of doing so. Um, I think in general, as you pointed out, the, the additional risk uh, there is maybe slight additional risk, but for some patients who are absolutely miserable without hormone replacement. Uh, because quality of life is important, uh, that's a decision that they would may, may accept that very small incremental risk. And the other thing I, I observe in clinic every day is, is most of the patients that we see in clinic who have developed breast cancer have not been on hormonal replacement therapy. They, they, most women aren't, uh, but then the, the, the occasional one we see who has, of course, the first question is, did the hormone replacement therapy cause the cancer? Well, it's hard to say because the last eight patients I saw weren't on hormone replacement therapy. So it turns out that breast cancer is a common disease and, and uh, to assign specific blame to the development of cancer in, in that particular case is hard to do. So I, I think what's important is that before patients start that treatment, that they have an informed discussion uh, with the, the prescriber, the, the gynecologist who, or the uh, women's health physician that they're seeing and All those issues can be discussed and then, you know, women can make a conscious decision about of how they want to what decisions they want to make. And whatever they decide, we're here to support them and to screen them and to take care of them if if problems do arise. But it's a it's a lifestyle issue for a lot of women and it's not it's real. So it has it's something that has to be factored in.
0: And I think a lot of people don't realize that when you have breast cancer treatment, it can shove you into menopause. Mm -hmm. And that's a horrible if you're young it's not but it's not good to sort of menopause is a gradual transition Mm -hmm. happen all of a sudden and then those women i think they're not able to take hormone therapy particularly if their breast cancer is um the estrogen receptor kind what's what's your take on that like i wonder if some of them can take hormone therapy if some of them can try progesterone or is it just sort of a complete no-go for you
1: in general, it's no, it's, it's no, but that's really a discussion that the medical oncologists have with with patients. But historically, it's not something that we've done. Um, um, you know, is it worth further study at some point? Probably so. Uh, but, you know, it, you got to remember breast cancer, people who develop breast cancer, like all cancers, uh, you know, once they get through treatment, they never want to see that cancer again. And so most people are pretty reluctant to um, go on medications, which even theoretically – uh, may trigger that cancer to come back. So historically we've just stayed, sort of stayed away from that. But I think in an individual case to mitigate some of the symptoms, there are other forms of estrogen, for instance, that may be uh, topical estrogen that, that may be considered. And that's something to discuss, uh, with one's medical oncologist about the role of those different, uh, sort of types of uh, therapy.
0: Okay. And do you, what do you tell the people in your life? Because I imagine the people who know you in your private life ask you a lot of, okay, what's the real secret? Like, what do I need to know
1: about <laughs> well, what,
0: about breast cancer? What's your top sort of, like, what's your top advice?
1: Oh, for in general about breast yeah. cancer in the UAE, I would say um, uh, uh, patients should really con- strongly consider compliance with screening. Uh, we, we've just been doing some some uh, research and it seems to be indicating that the, the the percentage of patients that we see in clinic that have screen detected cancers appears to be lower than we see, for instance, in the United States. So it suggests that um, and we know that the rates of screening in the UAE are not uh, maybe as high as they are in some other parts of the world, at least from the information I've seen, that appears to be the case. And so, um, uh, talk to your doctor, get checked and, um, get screened, uh, are important because as we talked about earlier, if we find a small breast cancer, there's a chance that the patient would have surgery. In some cases, no other treatment. In many cases, you don't need radiation or, um, chemotherapy or anything else. And, um, it can be associated with a very good prognosis. So if that same cancer was found two years later when the lady felt a lump, it could have already spread to other parts of the body and be much more advanced. So the first thing is get screening. Number two is um, encourage patients to be aware of changes in their body and to seek uh, help uh, because you shouldn't feel embarrassed about it. Um, that's what we do every day. That's why we come to work is to help people. And if you have a symptom and it turns out not to be related to cancer, then good. Uh, but if it, it, there's a chance that it is and you're worried about it, then get checked. And and uh, that often involves um, seeing a doctor and then uh, often involves getting some imaging studies. And then we can quickly determine with that and, and take a history whether this is a, a problem that needs to be investigated further. And if it doesn't, then we can reassure people. And at that setting, we can also do a breast cancer risk assessment and tell them how they should be followed in years to come. So it's all good, but people just need to be attentive to their symptoms. And if people don't know what symptoms, uh, they would include a lump or mass, changes in the skin color, new discharge, new or unusual or severe pain. Uh, those are some of the main things that people notice that should get checked. Or, you know, as you pointed out earlier, change in the shape of the nipple, any any change in the breast that that uh, is not is new, should be investigated because breast cancer is a common disease. And the last thing I would encourage people to do is, is, and we talked about this a little earlier, too, is that we have great uh, treatment resources in the country here and a number of great hospitals and a number of great groups. And, um, you know, when you have a breast cancer diagnosis, you don't need the treatment in the next six or 12 hours. But we do believe from studies we've done in the U.S. that timely care which means efficient care done in a, in a in a in an organized way you know typically a patient would get treated within two to three weeks of the time they were diagnosed not two to three months but uh, is that we have a lot of great care in the country and as good a care as anywhere in the world and and uh, patients don't necessarily benefit from traveling somewhere else now if you have a rare unusual case or you need a special drug on a trial then fine but there's great care here, and it, it can be done with patients at home. They can stay at home. They can be comfortable at home, and they can get all of the treatments they can get anywhere else, including surgery and, and everything else here, and that can lead to a much more efficient um, care process, and uh, patients can have do, do very, very well, and the other thing is we know from work we've done that there's a lot of anxiety about a diagnosis, which is normal. I mean, it would be unnormal not to be anxious about somebody who told you had breast cancer, but... A lot of that anxiety gets relieved once a patient has a treatment plan and actually starts on treatment and so getting a team together to take care of you uh, having an organized plan asking questions getting a second opinion if that's what you want to do um but move forward with it with a team that you trust and believe in and and uh you know there's brighter days ahead uh and a lot we can do to help people and support them so those are the three main things from my standpoint
0: uh, people are when it comes to screening i know there's people are concerned about the radiation
1: aspect
0: Mm so what's your take on thermography uh as an
1: alternative thermography hasn't been studied as well and when i was working and living in the u.s uh, there were parts of the u.s where this was very popular um so i think with more study maybe there may be more of a role for that but right now the workhorse of screening is mammography and uh Actually, the, one of the major cancer groups in the U.S. called the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, which Cleveland Clinic is a part of and many other major hospitals in the U.S., just recently revised and simplified their screening recommendations. Uh, and they they have said that uh, based on observations of mortality reduction related to annual screening, that women should begin annual screening at age 40. And, and this has kind of gone back and forth and everything else in the UAE current guidelines are that women at 40 should get every other year screening. And my my response is that um, the choice to screen is an individual, you know, the frequency of screening is something that is individual, and that patients, again, should speak to their own doctors who know their own history and their own biases and, and concerns, and then help them come up with a screening plan. And, and uh, it's also important to see the doctor because this this issue of risk stratification is critically important. We can, I can talk to a patient and take a history and look at their mammogram and use some modeling and determine, have a good idea whether they're high risk or normal risk for breast cancer. And that's important too because if patients are at particularly high risk, we go beyond just even annual mammograms. We actually add other screening in for them with breast MR and other things. So, um, we have a breast health clinic here uh, where we do a lot of sort of risk assessment, particularly people with family history. And there's great value to that because we can identify patients who are at high risk. We can also identify patients who may benefit from this uh, blood test genetic testing to really define their risk. And and uh, so, um, you know, that, that's why all this is so important.
0: What about self breast examination? Uh, Twenty years ago, it was all the rage and I don't hear much about it at all now.
1: Yeah, I think what's happened is there there were some studies out there uh, done, good studies that that suggested that this this uh, singular focus on the self breast exam and really trying to like, you know, we get back to the blame issues, teaching a woman who has very sort of uh, irregular breast tissue, which a lot of women have, that they should somehow be experts in 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 detecting the presence of breast cancer by their own physical exam created a lot of anxiety. And some patients, it drove them to the doctor every week because they were constantly feeling something. And so I, I think the American Cancer Society, by my recollection, sort of led the charge on this. They changed the terminology to something called breast health awareness. And that's the term I used earlier in this discussion. And it's really more about um knowing uh your body. I mean, no, not just the breast, but your skin and everything else and being attuned to changes. Uh And if there's a change and it persists for any period of time it should be checked uh, and that's true for particularly for for women and, and men also for for a breast exam if, if you're in the shower or you're looking in the mirror while you're getting dressed and and one nipple is inverted and the other one is not and hasn't been that way before that would be a reason to want to even though you can't feel a lump to go get uh, see a doctor who knows what they're doing and get imaging and get checked um, if you have never had discharge before, and now start having spontaneous discharge from the breast. That would be a reason to go get checked. And again, it's great news to go get checked and not have anything. And no, there's no blame or any anything. Nobody judges. Just want to help and uh, make sure people are healthy.
0: That is a wonderful feeling when you go and find out you.
1: <laughs> I've been there, believe me.
0: Yeah, I think we all have. It's like yeah.
1: You diagnose yourself with some horrible thing, and you go, and it turns out to be. Yeah, you plan uh, your,
0: your funeral. Um, yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, listen, thank you so much, Dr. Grubmeier. I Really appreciate you talking. Okay. To me
1: again. Thank you for your interest, and nice talking to you. I look forward to speaking to you again next year.
0: Sure, see you next year.
1: <laughs> okay. Take care.
0: That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.